trust that you do. If you can open with me to Romans chapter 8. So Romans chapter 8, welcome to week 15 of a series that has us walking through uh, the book of Romans. We believe in going deep here uh, at First Baptist Social Way. We believe in getting deep in the Word, and that's what we've been doing. And finally, praise God, we have come to the good news of this letter. Let me kind of frame it this way. Do you have a favorite chapter in the Bible? Most of us have favorite verses of the Bible. We have favorite Bible verses that we love. But do you have a chapter that is so special to you that if you could only choose one, that would be the one that you chose? About 50 years ago, a man named Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse decided to ask some prominent Christian leaders what their favorite chapter of the Bible was. He wrote to 20 prominent Christian leaders and basically uh, posed this question. If you were shipwrecked on a desert island and could could not take any book except the Bible and you could only take one chapter of the Bible, what chapter would you choose? The most chosen chapter that, that was chosen by these great leaders, was Romans chapter 8. But those leaders are not alone in their estimation. Romans is regarded by many Christians as the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. If you read commentaries on Romans, chapter 8 is described as the mountaintop or the chapter of all chapters for the Christian believer. In the words of Pastor John Piper, he put it this way, and I love it. He said, the greatest book in the world is the Bible. The greatest letter in that book is Romans, and the greatest chapter in that letter is chapter 8. This is the crowning chapter of the book of Romans. If you think of the Bible as the most purest of gold rings, the book of Romans is that three-carat diamond on top, and chapter 8 is that brilliant, beautiful point of that diamond. And the beauty of this chapter is undeniable. Romans 8 opens with no condemnation, and it closes with no separation. It is an absolute beautiful bookend that no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we go through, no matter what things await us as children of God, there is no condemnation and there is no separation for us. If you know this chapter, you know the heart of the Bible. If you know this chapter, you know the gospel. For Romans 8 gives us a description of Christian life from death to spiritual life, from justification, being declared uh, not guilty, being declared righteous before God, to glorification. It takes us from trials and suffering to peace and tranquility in the new heaven and the new earth. All of this in this one chapter. This chapter contains exhortations for us to persevere while at the same time showing us that God will preserve His people. In short, Romans 8 gives us a picture of salvation in its fullest sense, in its completion. And we're going to, in this study of Romans, we are going to take five weeks to walk through just this one chapter because it is that good. It's just that good. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, and we're going to dive in and see where uh, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, takes us. Paul begins this way, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this, your living, powerful, awesome word. You alone, God, have the words of eternal life. And we thank you for this beautiful, glorious chapter and all that it's going to show us. Today, we pray, Lord, that you would lead us by your spirit. God, speak for we're listening. God, I pray for any that's listening either here or online that doesn't know you, that today, this moment, would be the day of salvation. For others of us, God, just open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to hear and receive and respond. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So at the close of World War II, there was two pictures that appeared in a magazine showing a soldier in conflict with a tank. The first picture showed this tiny soldier with a huge tank bearing down upon him, about to crush him. The picture was proportioned in such a way that the, of kind of what the odds looked like of a tank versus one man with a rifle. It's not really good for him. The next picture shows what happened to that soldier's odds when he had a bazooka or a rocket launcher in his hands. This time the tank appeared smaller. He appeared larger, even um, larger than the tank. And the whole point of those pictures was this. With the right power, large intimidating objects begin to shrink in size. With the right power, large, intimidating objects begin to shrink in size. And here's what we know. Here's what we've seen from the book of Romans. Without the power of God in our lives, when conflicts come, when the world, the flesh, and the devil fight within us and against us, when those conflicts happen with sin, we are like empty-handed infantry soldiers in the presence of a tank, meaning we have no hope. We cannot do a thing. We are in trouble. Yet when we rely on, depend on the Spirit of God, we have the greatest weapon at our disposal. So I want you to think about where we have been and where we're going. Last week we dealt with Romans 7. And Romans 7 basically shows us how sanctification, that's the process of becoming like Christ, how sanctification doesn't work. Meaning it doesn't work when we try to do it on our own. If you try to live the Christian life on your own, without the power of God in you, you are fighting a battle you cannot win. You can't do it. But Romans 8 shows us how sanctification 
does work, meaning by the power of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. If you were writing the soundtrack for the book of Romans, it's going to be some bleak music at the beginning, but when you come to chapter 8, all of a sudden, um, the eye of the tiger is going to begin playing. And you're going to begin to feel like, man, victory is on its way. It's coming. I mean, it's, it's about to happen. You feel victory. And this is what Paul is getting at. This is what he's showing us is victory is ours in Christ. But he kind of poses this question to us. If the gospel is true, then how does that change how you see your life? If the gospel is true, if you've received it, how does that change your life? How does it change the way you see your life? So I want to dive in this morning to four truths that show us, according to the Apostle Paul, what life in the Spirit looks like. So four truths, life in the Spirit, what it looks like in your life and my life. First is this, our, our punishment is done. Our punishment is done. Look at verse 1 again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period, period. Then in verse 3, for God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So condemnation, just so you know, is a legal term. It means that a charge is held against you. You owe a debt. You owe a payment. You have been condemned and you are not uncondemned until that payment has been made. Yet for those of us who are in Christ, that debt no longer exists because, get this, the debt has been paid in full. We who are believers will never stand in judgment like the rest of the world. We will never face punishment for our sins because that has already happened. It's already done. For Christians, there is no condemnation, hear this, at all. It's not that we've moved from under condemnation for a while and maybe, just maybe, it could return. No, it doesn't exist anymore. Now, don't be misunderstood or don't let me misunderstand um, or don't misunderstand me. Excuse me. It doesn't say that there are no mistakes for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord knows there are. It doesn't say there are no failures for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, how there are. It doesn't say that there are no consequences for the actions of those who are in Christ Jesus. We know there are consequences. But it does say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a huge difference between consequences and condemnation. There are consequences, yes, for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we sin, there are still consequences. There is correction for those who are in Christ Jesus. But in Christ Jesus, we are uncondemnable. We're uncondemnable. Jesus has already paid the price for our sin. Therefore, God cannot condemn us for it. I love those words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not once we get older. Not when we, not when we overcome all of our sinful habits. Not when you get your life together because it's a hot mess right now. Not when you stop hurting other people. Not when other people start, stop hurting you. Not when you have a new job. Not when you know more of the Bible and can quote more of it. Not when everyone respects you the way you want them to respect respect you there's no qualifiers here now there is therefore now right this very minute if you are in Christ there is no condemnation for you and by the way the United States of America so believes that that we 
actually have that in our Constitution. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, here we go, history. What does this have to do with anything? But in the Constitution of the United States, the Fifth Amendment has what is called the Double Jeopardy Clause. The law of double jeopardy, meaning that a man cannot be tried for the same crime twice. Once a man has been tried and punished, he can't be tried again. That's the truth for us. Brothers and sisters, our sin has been punished in Christ. There is no condemnation for us. And let me just say this. Every now and again, I hear a phrase uttered by professing Christians and It's a horrible expression, and I hate it every time I hear it. It's the expression, God is punishing me. I stubbed my toe, God is punishing me. I got in an accident, God is punishing me. I ate pizza, and well, I ate the whole thing, and I have heartburn now, God is punishing me. Over and over again, we hear these things, God is punishing me, he's punishing me, he's punishing me. Brothers and sisters, God is not punishing you because God has already punished Jesus. He's already punished him. It's a law of double jeopardy. It's not going to happen again. Our punishment is done. If I am in Christ, if Christ is in me, God can't condemn me because Jesus was fully condemned for it. If if God condemned me just one ounce for my sin, it would be requiring two payments for the same Debt. It's not going to happen. Listen, many Christians get that Jesus paid the penalty for their past sin. He wiped the slate clean. But I tell you, Satan messes with them and absolutely tricks them into believing. Yeah, I believe that Jesus died for my sin and he forgave all the sins that I committed before I was saved. But what about all the ones I committed after? Well, he condemned me for those. And so many people walk with lack of assurance concerning all the mistakes and things that they make today. Will I be condemned for those sins? To which Paul says, not if you're a Christian. Just think about this. Here's a simple question. When Jesus died for your sins and my sins, how many of those sins had you committed? When Jesus died for my sins, I hadn't committed any of them. Right? You had not committed any of those sins. None. Meaning, Jesus paid for them all. All in advance. He atoned for the sins that I committed before I was saved and after I was saved. Consequences, yes. Correction, yes. Condemnation, never. Never. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. If you have got hold of this idea you will have discovered the most glorious truth you will ever know in your life. In fact, most of our troubles, he says, are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. Let me give you the litmus test of of what you truly believe and whether you really understand this verse. When you sin and when you mess up, what do you do next? Do you run away from God? Do you try to get your life in order? Do you try to clean yourself up? And then once you think you're clean enough, then you present yourself to God as if, God, look what I've done. I've got myself together. I'm not near as much of a hot mess as I used to be. Here you go, God. Do we do that? Or do you immediately, instead of running from God, you run to him as broken as you are. And you fall 
at the feet of one who is altogether merciful and gracious. You come to the very throne of grace where you can find grace and help in your very time of need. Let me just say this this morning, and please hear this. The most offensive thing you and I can ever do is to come before God with our own efforts, as if we clean ourselves up and, here you go, God, I've done it. No, we can't do anything. We don't do it. The best thing we could ever do is come before God and say, God, I can't. I can't. But God, you can. Oh, God, you are able. Brothers and sisters, our punishment is done. Know that verse. Memorize that verse. Use that verse because Satan will use everything against you. Satan will throw condemnation upon you. He will try to make you think condemnation is there. But there is therefore now no condemnation. The punishment is done. Which leads us to truth number two. Our position is defined. Our position is defined. Verse 1, the very end says this. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Then it says in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then verse 10 says, but if Christ is in you, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So follow with me here. No condemnation comes to only to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the only picture here. You know how important that phrase in Christ is. It's so important that it, it appears 87 times in the New Testament, mostly all by the Apostle Paul. You're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ. It's one of Paul's most favorite descriptions of what a Christian is, a person who is in Christ. We are in communion with Christ. We're connected with Christ. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite theologians and authors, said this, We do not preach Christ with a comma after his name as though waiting for something else. We do not preach Christ with a dash after his name as though leading to something else. We preach Christ, period. And because you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for you, period. It's important that you get this connection. So being in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Being in Christ removes all condemnation, all of it. Being in Christ develops a new connection. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And being in Christ produces a new expectation of how we live, how we move, what we do. Listen, we're going to mess up. We're going to fall. We're going to falter. That's part of, we saw last week, that's a common part of our Christian lives, especially as we depend and trust in ourselves. But we are connected to one who can't fall. We're connected to one who can't falter. F.B. Meyer, he was a late 19th century and early 20th century Baptist pastor. And he told a story of two Germans who wanted to climb the Matterhorn in Switzerland. They hired three guides to help them. Yes, three guides. So there's a party of five going up the side of the Matterhorn, and they're going up, and they decide to go to the steepest, most slippery part of the mountain, and they were going to tether there. So they tie themselves together, and they did it this way. Guide, um, regular person, guide, regular person, traveler, uh, guide. They began to, to move up, and as they're going up, the God in the back, the fifth, he slips and he falls. Thankfully, all the rest stay together. They stay connected. They're securely, their toe holes are secure. But as they go to do another step, the fourth falls. He takes with him the third, then the second. All four men have fallen, hanging from a rope. 
The head guide is the only one who stands firm. And the reason he stands firm is because he had taken a spike and he drove it deep into the ice. And he holds on to that spike and it holds him until the other four are able to once again get their footing. To which F.B. Meyer concluded the story saying this, and don't miss this. I am like one of those men who slipped. But thank God I am bound in a living partnership to Jesus. And because he stands, I will never perish. Because his foot will never slip, I am safe. That is the message. Brothers and sisters, that is the message of us. Our position in Christ, him in us, is defined. We are there. Which leads us to number three, our power is dynamic. The power that we have is dynamic. In the words of John Stott, he said, the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life that is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. In the first seven chapters of the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit is mentioned twice. Here in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned around 20 times. Something is changing here is what Paul is saying. Let's start with verse 4. Verse 4 says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Notice these two words. In us, don't miss that, in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Think about this. Those words, in us, not, hear this, not by us, meaning it's not about you. It's not about your effort. It's not about your work. It's not about your doing. It's not about something that you fulfill. It's not done by us. It's something that's being done in us by a greater power than us. This is where I get to share a verse that we've heard many times before, and I pray that it begins to make sense now. It's John 16, 7. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he's speaking with his disciples in the upper room right before he's leaving them. And he's saying to them, you're about to not see me anymore. I'm going away. And they're bummed. I mean, they are absolutely despondent. And then he says this, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. Think about in that moment what those disciples had to be thinking. They had to be thinking, no, it seems pretty good for us for you to stay right here. Life with you right beside us, Jesus, is pretty good. Being able to walk with you and talk with you, having Jesus right beside me seems pretty awesome. But Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I go away, then I will send the helper, the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you. He will be, hear this, in you. He will guide you into all truth. Jesus basically says this, don't miss this. What's better than me beside you? The Holy Spirit in you. That's better than me walking beside you, only in one place at one time, the Holy Spirit walking and being in all of you. And this is where we, I want to pause real quick and kind of get doctrinal for a second. This is where we understand that don't think of the Holy Spirit as a, some force or some power. The Holy Spirit is not an it 
The Holy Spirit is a person. In fact, the third person of the Trinity. Everything that's true of God the Father and true of God the Son is also true of God the Holy Spirit. And since the day of Pentecost, that third person, the Holy Spirit, has indwelt and has empowered every single child of God. That is the secret of our victory. And look at verse 9. Don't miss this. Verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone, don't miss these words, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So Paul is saying, if you have the Spirit, this is going to be true of you. But Paul wanted to stop for a second and say, but if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a child of God. So the picture here that Paul lays down, if you aren't Filled with the Spirit of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you've never trusted Christ. But if you do have the Spirit of God, there's power available to you. And let me just explain how the Spirit's power works in your lives. So your car, the vehicle that you drove here today or rode in today, works by what's called the storage principle. So fuel is stored on board. It's used by the internal combustion engine and you runs you all over the place and then it empties and you fill up again and you do it all over again and then it empties again and you do it again and again and again and again and again and again empty fill it up empty fill it up it works the same in electric cars those things run out too you got to fill it up again it is this picture of the storage principle but there's also another principle about a century ago in large cities in, in American, uh, American cities and even some cities even today, there were what was called uh, car buses that, that ran on electricity. There were wires that would be over the street and there were long arms that would attach to those wires. And as long as power was coming into that uh, moving bus, a, a car bus, it would be propelled forward. So you got... Two forms of, of transportation. One works on the storage principle. The other works on the contact principle. As long as it's contact, as long as contact remains, it is moving forward. So the question becomes, well, how do we as Christians move forward? And the answer is this, by both principles. By both principles. First of all, the storage principle, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe that there are children of God, there are, there are Christians, maybe some even in this room, you are a Christian, but you're not filled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in you. Without a doubt, he's in you because that's what the Word of God says. But you're not being filled with the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you why. You will never be filled with the Holy Spirit until you empty yourself of you. Until you're emptied of yourself, you can never be filled with him. And if all we do is think about the self, as all, if all we do, if our whole life revolves around us, we can never be filled with him. Even, think about it this way. Even some of us in the back of our minds is this picture of, I want to be filled by the Spirit of God. I want to be led by the Spirit of God. But if God doesn't come through, I want to have a cause where I am able to step forward and do the things that I know God would want me to do. And even those moments, God's like, no, 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 no. None of you, all of me is a great, great picture here. 
And so think about this. This picture of we're filled with the Spirit of God, but also the contact principle. We abide in Him, and He abides in us. Stay connected with Him. Stay contacted with Him. Continue to yield yourself to Him every day of your lives. Here's this, or hear this. There is not a day in your life that you have enough strength to handle what's coming. Not one. Not one. Therefore, we yield ourselves to Him knowing that He is more than able. And get this, He knows what's coming. I don't know what's coming, but he does. Now, this doesn't mean that as Christians we won't grieve the Holy Spirit. We will. It doesn't mean we won't quench the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that we won't ever sin, because, oh, Lord, how we will. But what it does mean is if we possess the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will produce something in us, fruit. There will be something that's happening within us. Our power is dynamic, which leads us to the last truth, Our practice is different. Our practice is different. Look at verses 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And follow with me here. Unbelievers are earthbound people, meaning they can only live for the here and now. They can't live for um, beyond here. They can only live for what is right here. Yet, believers in Christ Jesus, we think different, we act different, we live different, we love different because we know different. We know something that they don't know. Therefore, in living, we live to please our King. We live to please our Lord. We don't want to live to please ourselves. We've emptied ourselves of that. We've denied ourselves. We pick up our cross. We're following Him. Therefore, we want to live to please Him. But follow with me here. Imagine a, a man who is in a rebel army. So he's in a rebel army going against a benevolent, righteous ruler. But this man in a rebel army, he looks after his comrades. He keeps his uniform clean and pressed. He's brave. He has an incredible work ethic. He's always truthful with his superiors. And he's always punctual. All of those things are great and good things. But they're still being done in the context of hostility against the rightful ruler. So follow with me here. You would, have nev- you would never expect that benevolent, righteous ruler to be pleased by the conduct of someone who's rebelling. Brothers and sisters, in our flesh, we are rebels. We're rebelling against a good, benevolent king. And he will never be pleased with us as we're rebelling against him. Think about in this moment, who are you living to please? Are you living to please the flesh? Getting all the things your flesh wants, which will never be enough? Are you living to please the Spirit? Listen, to resist the flesh requires discipline in what you think, what you do, what you say, what you run to, what you run from. It requires discipline. It requires vigilance and keeping your heart on guard. Think of it from a earthly perspective just maybe even a human perspective in the same way that you don't give your credit card information to a suspicious website don't give into the flesh in the same way that you would never give your infant child to a babysitter with gang tattoos who can't pass a background check don't give in to the spirit in the same way you would never let a a doctor who reeks of alcohol do surgery on you don't give in to the flesh. 
Resist it. Don't give in. Don't think about, don't entertain, don't dream or imagine about what life in the flesh must be like when you're living in the Spirit. Instead, Paul tells us, set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Again, he's not a force. He's a person. So when we set our minds on the Spirit, here's what it means. You begin to think like the Spirit thinks. It's about relationship. I'm in a relationship with my wife, and I think about her. I think about what she wants. Maybe not all the time. Lord knows I'm not letting her come up here and dispute that. But not all. I mean, I mess up a lot of times, but I think about her. I think about what she would want. I think about things in that way. And here's the picture of what Paul was saying. We live and think about the Spirit. I think what the Spirit thinks. So what, what does the Spirit think? The Spirit thinks about the glory of God. The Spirit thinks about righteousness and truth and beauty and justice. The Spirit thinks about loving the church. The Spirit thinks about loving those outside the church. The Spirit thinks about the glory of Christ and the gospel of Christ being taken to all nations for all people. The Holy Spirit desires the the glory of God to go all places because God is worthy of it. This is the beauty of what we give ourselves to. Brothers and sisters, it's not about us. It's about Him. And let me end today with the words of Romans 8.11. We're going to actually put them on the screen. Or you can look in your Bibles and see it. I want to end here. The Apostle Paul says this. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And Paul had just said, if you're a Christian, then he does. If you're not a Christian, then he doesn't. But if he does dwell in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Paul basically just said this. Don't miss this. Are you curious to how much power you have within you as a Christian? If you're curious, Paul says, look to the empty tomb. Go back to that first Easter morning. Look at the empty tomb. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave, the greatest victory of all, All time is the same power, according to Paul, that lives in us. This is the greatest power because it conquered the worst enemy, Satan. And also because it solved our most terrible problem, which is sin. The kind of power available to help you change is the power that brought our Savior back from the dead. The resurrection power is to help you to help you be and to help you do what God has called you to be and to do. Just finish out with me here. There is a power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power, according to the word of God, is a person. His name is the Holy Spirit. If you know Christ, that person lives in you. And if that person lives in you, everything changes. Everything changes. Nothing can be the same. Brothers and sisters, the question that we must end with is, does he live in you? Has Christ changed you? Do you know him? If you are here today and you don't know Jesus, may today be the day of salvation for you. May today be the moment that you call out to God to save you from your sin. And by the authority of God's word, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord in that way will be saved. Let me also speak to us, children of God, in this room and watching online. Brothers and sisters, if we are not careful, we are believers who have been 
filled with the Holy Spirit of God, but we have quenched the Holy Spirit of God. And we have grieved the Holy Spirit of God. And we have filled ourselves with more of us than him. And we yield to our own desires way more than we yield to him. We yield to what we want to do way more than what he wants to do in us and through us. And today is a day, brothers and sisters, that we need to once again yield ourselves to him. To his ways, to his plans, to his purposes, but to him as a person, the Holy Spirit, to what he wants in your life and my life. I'm going to ask you to stand as we call the musicians forward, the praising forward, and enter a time of invitation and consecration. Let us pray. Fathers, we come before you in this moment. We do so with a sense of humility. We do so with a sense of anticipation, Lord, that we know that you're at work. Holy Spirit, you are working because you always attend your word. And I pray right now for any that's listening here or online, God, that don't know you, may today be the day they call upon you and are saved. They don't know what that means or looks like. God, I pray that they would ask someone, or they would ask me or ask Pastor Jordan or anyone in this room or anyone around them or reach out to someone what it means to be saved. But also, Lord, pray for us as believers that you would help us to empty ourselves of us, to deny ourselves. Don't put ourselves front and center every moment, God, but to deny ourselves, to empty ourselves of us so that we might be filled with you. Show us, Lord, each person listening, God, show us what that looks like in us. Finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.